Shayna here with another entertaining episode of the Adventure Options Podcast. You want adventures and you have options. In this episode, I get to talk with Kurt Kate, who is the founder of Wildland Adventures. We talk about conservation, family, tides, and transformation. Stick around to hear why Kurt is, quote, definitely romantic. This podcast is sponsored by Adventure Writers, copywriting for the travel industry. There are 4.6 billion web pages out there. Make sure yours stands out. Go to adventurewriters.agency for help. That's adventurewriters.agency. Now for the show. All right, Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. When I was looking up information about you and trying to learn as much as I could about you, I decided that if I was a fly, I would want to be a fly on your back. I would want to go where you go and see the things that you see. Well, I have had an amazing life of travel, even when I was a kid. Um, my father's from Turkey, so we traveled there when I was you know, young and, and had family there, and then, from the, and then getting into the travel industry for now some 35 years. It's been incredible. So were you raised in Turkey, or were you raised here in the U.S.? I was born and raised in L.A., uh, and, and my father really wanted to kind of become an American, and so we didn't really mix too much with Turkish, you know, community in LA. And I, unfortunately, my mother, you know, she lived, raise us and, and teach us Turkish. So it's embarrassing that I go to Turkey so many times. For me, I always look back on that experience, not being able to speak the language, but, but realizing that you don't have to have language to communicate love and make connections. And so, yeah, you know, just being with my family in their apartment on the Bosphorus, having this precious time together, you know, only a few trips we took when, you know, on the vacation, we just maximized our time together and acknowledged uh, our relationship as family and, and all that, you know, with not that much interpretation from my parents, you know, so it's good. That was that, a big part of realizing that for myself. That actually makes me feel better as a parent because I speak fluent Spanish, and my husband speaks fluent Spanish, but I'm pretty sure our kids have learned more Spanish from Dora the Explorer than they have from us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't really happen. For me, also, it didn't really happen. I speak Spanish now, too, fluently, but it didn't happen in, until I finally lived in Costa Rica, you know, and that was my goal was to, well, not to only to live in Costa Rica, but to live in any Latin country where I could really, you know, get the language down. Now, as I understand it, you got your master's degree in natural resources. Did your adventure travel life start before that? Or is it that degree that gave you kind of the in into adventure travel? No, my, uh, well, besides the fact that I traveled to Turkey and kind of had that, you know, with my family, um, I backpacked you know, in Latin America at one point and I'll um, cross the border hitching and busing from Mexico through Central America. Our goal was to get to Peru, but I had been doing conservation work actually in Oregon uh, for several years doing wilderness conservation work. And 
So my interest in conservation, uh, my one of my goals in that backpack trip was to get to Costa Rica because I heard they had great national parks. And, and here's another thing that just was a, the amazing kind of stepping stone for me was walked into the office of the National Park Service there simply to ask about information and maybe determine where we were going to go as, as backpackers and where we we're going to camp. And when I left that office that day, I turned to my travel companion and just said, someday I am going to work in this office because I was doing conservation and I, and I just loved the people. So they were so in that office in the park service. So sure enough, I had a chance to get a master's degree at the University of Michigan in School of Natural Resources. And the National Park Service director of Costa Rica spent a year there studying in the same program I was in. So we got to know each other and, uh, and that's how I made my connection and eventually went down and worked in the parks. It's serendipity. I love it. Yep. Yep. And creating that, just putting those words out, you know, creating the intention, not knowing how it was going to happen. I've realized again, too, that how powerful that is. Where do you think your love of conservation and protecting natural resources and stuff came from? Where do you think that was born? Just the simplicity of growing up in Southern California, in the foothills uh, near Pasadena, above Glendale, playing in the canyons, hiking up fire breaks. Um, yeah, for sure. I just, I, I just have you know, a, an innate sense of connection with nature, building little dams and streams and uh, you know, having a mountain lion come into our backyard one time. And you know, just that, I'm, that's, I know that's where it comes from. That's awesome. Mm. So you started in Oregon in conservation got your master's, moved down to Costa Rica. What kind of were you in charge of in Costa Rica? What were your roles? They assigned a, a counterpart from the planning department um, with me. And, uh, and, then, and because of the work that I'd been doing in Michigan, I was actually studying national park conservation and management. My professor had uh, lived in Latin America and developed a planning methodology. So he was really well known. And so they knew my background that in that regard and so yeah they, they sent us out to uh Kawita national park on the caribbean coast um afro-caribbean culture and small marine park land and and marine environment and so we lived out there and basically they had kind of gone, gone through an exercise a planning exercise in the park with their team gathered a bunch of data and then said you know if you could then help compile all this into a meaningful plan over a six-month period, you know, and so at the end of all that, and then I presented it to the Park Service director. Um, but the cool thing about this was um, I did my master's thesis related to this, which was the issue of uh, how to deal, how to, how to incorporate and manage indigenous people or otherwise residents that live around and within protected areas uh, rather than just kick them out you know, because you're saying this is a national park. You, there's people shouldn't be here. You know how to integrate, you know, communities so they can be, you know, have a life and use the resources if this, as long as somewhat, comp you know, compatible with parks. And so that became my thesis, which is still a really relevant issue today. And and what I've been working on in terms of adventure travel and developing tourists to, to protected areas and then working with the communities around them. It comes up in almost every single one of my interviews is how do you incorporate the people who 
live in these places that we're traveling to. So yes, definitely still relevant today. So what would be your, you know, top couple things that you would say to incorporate these villages and these people into the projects? Well, looking, you know, at it from, you know, the cultural side and, and recognizing the importance of conservation, you know, there is, we have to look at um, the level of development, if you will, the, the extent to which the community and pe- individuals, in some cases, interact with the natural environment, the level of technology that they're using. So, obviously, in, there's still lots of places in really, you know, remote areas with indigenous cultures living pretty simple lives that have minimal impact on the environment. And, you know, in a lot of those places, they're such an integral part of, the, of nature you know, they don't damage the environment. And then many, many cases, they actually protect it and have, you know, well, long established relationship with it in that regard and respect it still, you know, um, based on very ancient traditional values. And then it begins from there, you know, just development comes in. Um, people have growing needs as a community for education, healthcare, uh, access, you know, uh, to growing economies. And so, then we just have to look at um, uh, how they can live compatibly with new goals of a park. And that's when it gets really tricky with conservationists. And, and, and that's really where adventure travel comes in because that has presented um, a source of, of, of income and education and access and healthcare. I mean, the things they really need, uh, yet in a way that's still compatible with protecting areas because the kinds of travelers we bring in our niche of the industry are ones that care about, you know, protecting the environment. And then over the years, I've just seen it so many times as well that when travelers want to come and spend money and see wildlife or hike in natural areas and they value that, then local people begin to recognize that who may not have recognized that uh, themselves. Take me from Costa Rica to starting Wildland Adventures. Where's the path there? Well, uh, a colleague of mine from the University of Michigan and the School of Natural Resources, we got together. He had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, and some friends approached him and asked if he would help them do a track. And this is like in 1979. And he did, and he thought, well, this is kind of a cool thing. If I can actually get back to Nepal and continue working on my project and have people pay me and you know, um, so he did that, and then uh, he asked me if I wanted to take people back to Costa Rica because I knew people in the parks and rangers and places that you know that we would want to take people to, and so that's uh, what we did. And, I, and because I had backpacked to Latin America, uh, you know, Peru was a place that we started right off the bat too. So we just started this little company, not having any business savvy at all. Um, putting up posters around the University of Michigan campus, you know, having a little bit of success here and there. And, and I'll never forget one time, um, this guy from a sales rep from Air India had an office in Detroit and he saw, you know, this fledgling little company and there weren't very many of us really as doing adventure travel in those days. And uh, he invited us to dinner and he figured, well, these people are taking, you know, people, you know tourists to Nepal, they, you know, they should be using Air India so he had obviously you know, an interest there. And during the course of the conversation, he pulled out his wallet. He, he laid a $50 bill on the table and said, 
you gentlemen need to take an ad out of a newspaper and start your business for real. <laughs> you know, you're you're dating yourself by saying you did a newspaper ad. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> you bet. Exactly. <laughs> how that has changed. Yeah. So, but that was how much we knew about marketing and running a business, and and we just happened to be at the right in the in the right time because ecotourism was new, adventure travel was new. There really were hardly any companies sort of focusing and specializing in, in adventure travel. And um, I look back and I, I do see how, in some ways, much more challenging it, it is for people to start an adventure travel company now than it, than it was then when everything was new. And I used to write about ecotourism, the relationship between conservation and travel, and I would get a lot of free press and articles, you know, and that's obviously much harder to do today too. Well, in... In one way, it's good that it's harder because that means the conversation has grown and there's more people talking about it and there's more companies trying to get involved in it. On the other hand, it's, a, it's hard because it's hard to know who to trust. It seems like one of those catchphrases that people throw out now that it's hard to know, kind of like, uh, oh, geez, I can't think of an example, but just a catchphrase that everyone throws on their website and then you, you, really have, you really have to do some research to find out exactly how much they're doing to be eco-friendly or to be sustainable. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, there's no question. But then again, our industry has evolved to the point, too, where um, we, you know, we have the Adventure Travel Trade Association, for example, and this network of people that um, really care and you begin to, you know, be able to use that. I mean, it's such a friendly, for the most part, it's we've, and I know this has been my position is to be a colleague and to be supportive and communicative and do the best we can to raise the, our little niche of the industry, you know, and less competitors, but more colleagues. And, and so there is a great network and now you can more easily identify who's who and who you want to work with. And yeah, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's still, um, you know, just so many companies coming in and there are a lot of people who just, you know, want to get in on it and, and don't pay real attention or know how to take care, you know. But I would say also that, you know, as much as it can be challenging to start now because it's not as the new thing as it used to be, um, there's there's just still um, a growing market of, you know, growing demand for this. And so there's more and more people who want to do this more. So, uh there's more opportunity for companies to get involved and capture part of that market. Oh, definitely. I think the majority of today's travelers and adventure travelers are looking to truly connect with the places that they're going, not just disconnect from their everyday life, but connect with a new place. So I definitely think there's a market for it. Let's digress for one second. I think it was around this time that you met your wife, I can't remember her name. Anne. 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 Yes. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. it around this time that you met Anne? I actually, so from my first experience, as we're counting about joining with my friend from, you know, did uh, doing Nepal, we split off eventually because that was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where where school was, and they stayed, and um, I didn't want to. I'm from the West Coast. I was. I had seven good years in, in the Midwest. I loved it. And Ann Arbor is pretty you know, unique. But then I moved back out West and started Wildland in 86. And then it was in 87. Uh, I went to a local music festival here, Bumbershoot. And somebody, here's another serendipitous thing. My neighbor who worked for a radio station gave me a, a free ticket 
to go to Bumbershoot and Anne was given a ticket to go to Bumbershoot by somebody else. And so we're two you know, free spirits wandering around with free tickets by ourselves, uh, meant to be. I asked her to salsa dance. And, uh, and then, yeah, we sat around the fountain at the Seattle Center and she had already been in the travel industry and we knew common you know, people. And so, um, yeah, we, 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 she was, after year one, all those years, we've been doing this together. Kurt, it's like a movie. It's <laughs> so romantic. It is. We, you we have did our... to be at the same place. You ask her to salsa dance and you sweep her off her feet. It's so okay. romantic, especially in today's world of bars and out online dating. <laughs> yeah, I, I am definitely romantic. And, you know, the, the milieu of adventure travel and the incredible places we go has just really been... A uh, wonderful way to ha ha be in relationship together, you know. I mean, and some people are amazed. For us, I look back. Uh, we didn't. We never really had trouble with our desks side by side for all those years, you know, working on our business. And uh, and, and and until finally, at one point, we did have a consultant come in and say, "You guys need to separate your offices," you know, because we had more staff and. It's a little weird when you have two business owners like there's right next to each other and people might want to come in and talk to me or her or whatever. So we grew, we grew up and uh, we raised our child uh, together. You know, we started the business in a, in a home and, uh, and then evolved out of that as well. So it's, it's, you know, integrating this business with personal life and relationship and travel has just been incredible. Well, it's such an all-encompassing business anyways. You would need it to be integrated into your personal life. Otherwise, you might not yeah. see your wife very often. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's right. That's right. And we've, I mean, we started designing family trips. So as our son was growing up, uh, we were in a school environment where the principal really supported us. So I could go in and, and do presentations and draw all these other families. And so every year we would do, we started in Costa Rica, the next we did Belize, next we did Panama, and then we did Africa, you know, and just all went from there. And, and now we take our grandson, who's a teenager, I'm dating myself again. This is right. <laughs> this is one thing that I definitely wanted to talk to you about. So I'm glad you brought it up. In all of my interviews, I don't think we talk very much about the family aspect of travel as far as going with kids. Um, I know that because I, I myself have four young children and often when I'm talking to people, I think, oh, that sounds wonderful, but what would I do? Because I have these children that, that I would have to figure out what to do with. So talk to me about your family trips, how, how it came about, how you decided, or I guess the better question would be, what age group you decided would be old enough to be able to do some of these adventurous things. Talk to me about that. Well, right now we'll do trips for families, for example, with really young kids, toddlers, for example. I mean, there are people who just unabashed, unafraid, bold travelers who, you know, having kids doesn't make a bit of difference, you know, because they travel so important and they just, you know, comfortable. So, so we do that. I would say more commonly, however, um, to really engage and, and, and travel more, you know, I mean, when you've got a toddler, you might be a little more limited in how fast and how far and everything you do. But, um, you know, five years old, I think is a really good age to be again, to hit the road and cover some ground and be in, you know, rougher conditions occasionally to, you can work your way through, for example. And, um, you know, and, and kids at that age are also really engaging, both 
hosts and you know as travelers as guests you know to to have that happen at that age um and so yeah we started taking people young young families with kids like that age and our our son and and others to costa rica simple but easier places where there was a little bit of an infrastructure obviously then i would say you know graduating up to eight years old is probably i wouldn't you know take people young people to africa until maybe they're eight and certainly even a little bit older where you really endure longer road trips and even kids i mean after a while it's like oh more giraffe you know um they get tired of <laughs> even being on safari at a certain age you know so um and and then you get and then we actually realized too as as we were working through those years when our son got to be a teenager upper middle school and certainly in high school everything really had to change. We had to be, get more active, more adventurous, uh, create experiences where the kids could actually be, have their own experiences without us, you know, there. And, and especially key to that was, I think, the guides, so that, like, really have awesome experiences between the guides and the kids where they go off and they do something that maybe the parents wouldn't approve or, I mean, I don't mean, you know, just, but that kind of thing where they feel like they're doing something that doesn't, have their, their parents aren't looking over them, but they're with a really good guide and he's having a lot of fun. And then the other thing we started doing also, well, even at the younger age was asking our guides to bring their kids with them so that, you know, there would be an immediate connection because they love that. They could be on the road and not have to leave their kids or their, their family behind. And that just created an instant connection, you know, a deeper understanding of the culture and the people because you're traveling with another family. I would definitely appreciate that as a parent to have my kids interacting with the guide's kids just to give them that connection to the world and to people because there is a difference in generations as far as, you know, having a five-year-old connecting with a 35-year-old guide. Not that they can't, but there is a different level of connection with people maybe in your same age range going through some of your same things. So I just think that's wonderful. Good job. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite things that have happened in Wildland Adventures? Like could be business decisions that you've made or trips that you've opened up. What are some of your favorite things throughout the years that have happened? Oh, I've just um, sometimes like one-off trips that uh, we tried and, and didn't work, for example, but were some of the most amazing adventures. I mean, sometimes they did work as well too, but just sort of really stepping out and doing something different. You know, I mean, one time we, uh, this was one of the one-off trips because um, it, it, it's really, really difficult to succeed. But uh, we took a group of guests and we flew down as far as we could go into uh, Southern Argentina and Tierra de Fuego and Rio Gallegos is where we flew in. And then from Rio Gallegos, we drove down the, to the end of the road to some estancia somewhere. And, you know, I'd worked this out with a, a, with a guide, a new guy. I mean, I kind of trusted him as well. And he was very confident stuff. But, um, but one of the things we just didn't realize, which think about and plan for, was the fact that the tides there are like 25 feet. And so we're trying to trek from the end of the road, you know, to, and our goal was to get to the tip of Tierra de Fuego, more or less, to a bay down there. And we had arranged for a boat to come around from Ushuaia in, to pick us up. And the first thing was we had to overcome these, these tides. So that set us back time-wise. We'd have to either wait till the tide receded or walk way up the creek and 
to a place where we could find the cross and then back down to the coast and continue on down, you know. So I said, well, next time if we do next time, we'll bring rafts. But um, yeah, but it, and then we're just about down to the to the bay where we were going to end our, our track and have the boat pick us up. And a Polish film crew was walking up and they were like still white as sheets, you know, and, 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 and they said that sea was so treacherous. They had come in on a Argentine coast guard cutter and they were still like completely freaked out. So we got down there and we look out with our binoculars and there's this like these massive waves outside the bay, you know, and there was no way the little boat that we had hired, was going to make it out to where we were. And there was no radio, no cell phone communication in those days too. So we just waited. I tried to, I tried to fish. We were eating mussels. We were running out of food. And we had a regular group of guests. And that's the thing too. I think in many ways, travelers were more accepting and realizing that, that these were real adventures, and especially one like this. And it wasn't until finally three days later, we heard this you know, coming in and the Argentine Navy flew in helicopters and took us out and that blew all the money on the trip. And, you know, uh, but that's an adventure I'll never forget. For and a story, what a story those people can tell. And I'm sure, you know, this many years later, the waves got bigger and bigger and bigger. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. I just love that though. Just having that adventure and learning to adapt to what's going on around you. I think that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I would have loved yeah. to, I would have loved to be the fly on your back on that trip. <laughs> and then I think another one that was just, we did a monastery trek in Nepal where we had a monk trekking with us and we were visiting monasteries along the way. So, um, and you know, people just don't have monks in their trekking group. So each community we came to, you know, saw us as something pretty unique and interesting, you know, and engaged us more deeply. And then, of course, we uh, had uh, sessions with, with the monks in the monasteries. Uh, but then one day we came around the corner and the villagers were pulling a drowned man out of the river. And, you know, um, I mean, it was, I think that was the first time I, I saw a dead person probably. And, and it was shocking, of course, when you're traveling like that and having a good time you know, walking through the mountains and and we were all wondering what Topke was going to say. Topke was our monk. You know, that day, you give a Dharma talk every day at the end of the day, sitting around the fire with popcorn and tea. And, um, and he just reminded us that we were a, a mandala of our own, a, a, you know, an entity moving through space and time. And to be confronted by death like that was, you know, just Buddha reminding us to truly live our life in the moment the most we can. And, and I always remembered that. Um, you know, and, and and just recollecting, you know, reminding myself of that every, every every moment I think about that trip, and certainly whenever I am around death, or you know, then I, I remember that experience and and Top K, and so and just some that was a beautiful trip that gave me a deep life life lesson. It, a transformational trip is what I would call it. It absolutely was. Yeah, it was probably the first deep transformational experience I had on an adventure trip that has uh, been a part of who I am since. I, I can't imagine how it couldn't have been. That's amazing. Let's talk about two more of your trips that are coming up that I noticed and thought were really unique and I wanted to talk about them. One of them is sold out, which is disappointing. Yes, yes <laughs> it is. But, but I do want to talk about it. And this is for um, 
the water resources that you're doing in Zimbabwe. Why don't you go ahead and tell me about that trip? Well, the reason it's sold out is because it is a trip that engages people with the community and the opportunity for the travelers to, to, you know, uh, you know, to work with alongside local people. So, you know, when you go to, and this is in Zimbabwe and in Wange National Park. And, you know, when people go to Africa, of course, the focus is primarily initially on wildlife. Um, and, but it's always when people come back, you know, the thing we hear first usually is, oh, and, the, you know, the, the community, the people that we met, you know, they, they were so beautiful. It was it just, you know, um, and that's the heartfelt, feeling that they that they come back with from Africa that draws them back the next time you know uh, and this trip is you know going to a Wanga National Park where there's over 40,000 elephant and, and the history here is there's not a lot of water and so um, this herds of, these herds of elephants now depend on water which is pumped up from underground so it's kind of a sustainable tourism endeavor very very much so in the sense that right now they have diesel engines pumping water up you know uh, and what we want to do is working with the local guys there that we partner with uh, to uh, create solar panels or hybridized uh, diesel solar so that um, the water continues to get pumped up. Now, daytime solar can handle it, and at nighttime, the diesel kicks in. Um, and then we're also putting in some a uh, couple of wells in local communities. And, and this, what makes this Wange project so um, you know, amazing is that the communities are well all along that progression I mentioned earlier of understanding the relationship between tourism and, and, and conservation. And now, uh, you know, guys that were ex-poachers are working in lodges or acting as guides and, and, and are very vigilant about uh, helping to protect uh, from other poachers and, and people who, you know, hunt for food and, you know, so... So that, I think people really got that idea and they really, you know, that's why it sold out. Well, and what a unique view to be able to hear from someone who used to be a poacher as far as maybe their backstory and why they did it and what, you know, led them to the good side and what, you know, yeah, what got yeah, them to change their minds and stuff. What a unique perspective. It's almost like when the FBI hires a hacker to yeah. come in and there help on the other side kind of thing. I think that's. Yeah, we're going to interact with the scorpions too. They're uh, they're a, a serious anti-poaching you know team. So we're going to spend a night in the camp with the with the scorpion group around the campfire in a in a very rustic kind of uh, wilderness camp, and just for one night to get that experience of what it's like for them to be out in the bush. Oh, yeah. okay. I want to be the fly on that trip too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the person on the trip, but but if I can't, I want to be the fly. Well, you're a writer too, right? I am. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's just so many cool things you can do to get out on trips and and document them. Well, and that's all that writing is, is storytelling. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I love, yeah, just hearing different perspectives that maybe you didn't think of before. Yeah. So how involved are the guests on that trip? What What exactly are they involved in as far as the wells and the solar panels and stuff? Uh, well, we're going out on, uh, on water pump runs and, and we'll be involved with the engineers and helping, you know, put the equipment together. And, and then in the communities, just, you know, helping uh, to dig and to uh, work with the schools and, and uh, just, yeah, be a part of, of various aspects of the project, both out where the elephants are 
and, and engage with the communities. So do you think this is a trip that you will do again? Well, I'm actually thinking we should maybe open up a second departure. I don't know if we'll do them back to back, but yes, you know, for sure next year, because we do a lot of trips out to uh, Wangay already. And, uh, and part of sustainability, of course, is to remain engaged and continue the support that they need to maintain e equipment. And, um, and I'm sure that they'll, and then once one community sees what's happened and another community wants to, you know, engage in the opportunity. So that, you know, then I would hope that we'll be able to, to, to do that. So for everyone who's listening and thinking, why are you telling me about a trip I can't even go on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There may be another one. Just hold tight. Unlike Argentina, I think this one will be a repeat. <laughs> I want to repeat the Argentina one. I'm not going to lie. I, know. <laughs> I want that story on my on my list of stories. That's <laughs> the next trip I kind of wanted to talk about is what you on your website are calling diving into immortality. And this one just sounds fascinating and slightly terrifying. Mm -hmm. Solely because of the amount of people that will be at this event or yeah. I don't even know what to call it. Why don't you tell us about that? Adventure? Well, this is a trip we can't do every year because it actually happens on six and 12-year cycles. It's the largest gathering of humanity um, in a, and as a spiritual gathering as well where um, – the uh, sadhus come from their meditation places and remote communities and gather along into three different areas. There, it, this, it's held in three different areas, but one area each cycle. And um, this is in Allahabad this year, and it is gonna, a gathering of 50 million sadhus and seekers who come here on the, uh, on the, on the banks of the Ganges River. Um, and over a three-month period. And there, someone also, I haven't been yet, so someone once described it to me as a, a marketplace of spirituality, you know, because they are all there to, you know, practice, uh, to communicate amongst each other because they're otherwise uh, completely isolated in their own environments. Uh, I mean, I'm literally talking about coming from caves and under trees and forest areas, and, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, uh, others coming from different communities. Um, so they share with each other, uh, and and then uh, and then uh, you know give teachings. And so when you're there, so we're going to have a, a a luxury camp, sort of all of the style of an African safari with in-suite, you know, toilet and shower, um, and a bed and and a, you know dining area. And the woman who's our hostess there, Lakshmi, is uh, uh, been involved in tourism uh, and she is a follower of one of the gurus who has come and, and she actually met him many years ago at the Coombe. Um, so she'll be perfect. And she's going to you know, take us around and, and show us and, you know, and help interpret what we're seeing and introduce us to different gurus and, and of course her own guru too. So we'll have a, a safe place to retreat. You know, and in, in, in this, literally, it transforms into a city, you know, of, of, of different camps, of different sadhus uh, that come from all over India. That is not a city. That is a country. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. you're right. In, I, so, India, in India, it's just a city. <laughs> so I grew up in Idaho. And when I was growing up, there was approximately a million people in the whole state. 
And so it just blows my mind to think of being somewhere with 50 million people. Like I, I can't even wrap my brain around how that many people can be in one place or one area. Yeah. No, it's, it's really going to be incredible and uh, you can get lost pretty easily there too. So we'll all be vigilant for each other and uh, taking care. You bet. But, but it's going to be just amazing to see people's devotion and to hear of, of probably different spiritual practices than your guests are probably used to. And so that's just one way to open your mind to the world is to see how other people practice spirituality. It is. And some have described this as, um, you know, the deepest um, way to experience India. I mean, this is truly what India is, you know, in 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 the most, in the deepest way. And so any trip to India is incredible and you have opportunities to, you know, go to temples and, and, uh, you know, uh, experience, you know, um, spiritual practice as it's manifested everywhere uh, in Varanasi, especially. I mean, it happens. People go here for um, you know cremations and burials, and uh, but uh, here it is the ultimate uh, experience of the deepest part of what India really is. That's beautiful. And you yourself are going to be there, correct? Yeah, Anne and I are co-leading the trip. Yep. And, uh, and we'll have our, you know, a guide we normally work with, because you know, we're going to be going to Varanasi. We're going diving deep into Varanasi, spending more time there because it's, it's an incredible uh, place to uh, where uh, Hindus go to be married and to be buried and to uh, you know, bathe in the Ganges River. I will go ahead and put that link in the show notes, assuming that it's not totally filled up by the it's time. It's not. That- no, we actually do have space. It's a, it's a really well, going to be for a special group of people. And so it's not for everybody. That's perfect. I will put that in the show notes and as well as your regular website. Kurt, it has been just lovely talking with you. I usually like to leave off on a piece of advice. So what kind of advice or inspiration would you give today's adventure traveler? Well, um, find an opportunity to step into something unexpected. You know, uh, I like to follow music and see where it's coming from and, and knock on a door and step into, you know, a space. I remember I, I walked into a, a grass hut in, in the Andes because I heard some flute playing. And when I went in, it was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. But I just love that opportunity. And, and you know, and I think um, the other thing about this like we just mentioned the stories is actually share our life stories. We, we it, you don't have to even think about what can I talk to this person about, but it's what is your life story, you know? And, and I think that's just an opportunity to really engage right there. That was perfect. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for being here. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I love, I love sharing, you know, what this incredible life is, is with, with other people who either go as travelers or engage in business with it. Thank you. Shana here. Now you see why I wanted to interview Kurt. He has such a calm and easy way to describe the fundamentals of adventure travel, and he lives what he believes. Remember to visit adventurewriters.agency to join my mailing list and get updates when a new podcast episode airs. Until next time, ciao.